Good morning, Areola Bible Church. Yeah, I am humbled and honored to be able to preach to you this morning as your pastor. When the elders called last Friday to let us know how the vote had gone, Eric and I cried tears of joy together. And we thanked God for you and especially for bringing us to you. And we are so excited to see what he has for us there, uh, what he's going to do in us and through us for the church body, and really the opportunity that we have to continue a legacy of upholding God's word that Areola Bible Church has had for so long. So we ask that you would be praying for us in this next week. We're hoping to be moving in just about a week to be coming up there. So we're looking forward to being up there and being with you and hopefully getting back to doing services at some point in the near future. So would you pray with me as we begin today? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this church and this opportunity that we have. I pray that you be with us and help us all to grow together and pray for this time that you help uh, Eric and I navigate through getting the move done and through the challenges that are presented during this time, Lord. Again, we thank you for all your blessings on us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week I talked about teachers and the importance of knowledge. Now, I'm going to be stressing that again because this passage, starting in Matthew 16, 13, where we start today, all the way through early in Matthew 20, is a section where Jesus is really trying to impart a greater level of knowledge to his disciples, to his students. Thinking of that, I want to tell you a funny story about myself. Several years ago, I was in seminary and I had taken one preaching class, and I got asked to do a pulpit supply at a church not far up the road from where we were living. And so I, I prepared a sermon, and I went up there, and it was a really old church, a big church, with a huge pulpit. And I got there, and I was just sweating bullets. I was so nervous. And as things started to get going, there was only five or six people there other than my family that I had brought with me. You see, I had been invited to come preach because it was the church's campout weekend. And the worship team was gone, and I didn't have hardly anyone there. And so one guy got up and sang a song, and then he handed the microphone to me and told me to begin. And I just didn't feel prepared, and I was so scared, and I got up there, and I blew through my 40 minutes of material in about 17 minutes. So the whole church service lasted about 19 and a half minutes that Sunday. And I just felt like preaching was not my thing. I, it scared me. You know, there was something about writing the sermons that I really enjoyed. I enjoyed studying God's word. But getting up in front of a congregation, I was terrified. I'd had the instruction in how to write a sermon. I'd given sermons to fellow students. But I lacked the practical knowledge of how to really do it. How to connect people with what I was saying. Well, later that summer, I came out here to where we are now in Arizona for an internship. And the church that I am with now, I got to do a lot of things. But there's another church down the road where I got to do a preaching internship. For six Sunday nights, I preached to about 80 to 100 people. And the next day, the pastor would sit with me and we would review the tape. And I learned. Pastor Steve took the knowledge that I had of how to construct the sermon 
knowing what to say, and he taught me how to say it. He built on the foundation that I had. You know, throughout Jesus' ministry, he has been teaching his disciples. We've looked at that a lot recently. But now as he's drawing nearer to the end of his ministry, he's going to build on the foundation that he has laid. He's going to ramp up his instruction. In this passage, Jesus will reveal who he is to the disciples. He will begin to reveal his plans for the future. And he also reveals his mission here on earth. So in our first section, verses 13 to 17, we look at Jesus being revealed. Begin in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? So Matthew gives us a location here as being Caesarea Philippi, which is about 25 to 30 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. So it was, it was a journey from where they had just been. And in fact, Caesarea Philippi is about as far north as you can get in what was then the Jewish territory. So Jesus takes his disciples all the way up there and he asks them a question. Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? Well, let's look at that question in the context of the book of Matthew. You know, Matthew presents Jesus in the first verse of the book as the Messiah. Matthew 1.1 says, The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah the son of David, the son of Abraham. And similarly, in that first chapter, he refers to him as the Messiah in verses 16 and 17. But then, he stops. And Jesus, I and mean, we're over halfway through the book, and Jesus has not yet once called himself the Messiah. And that's the whole point of Matthew's book, is to present Jesus as the Messiah. That's what he does from the very beginning. But he hasn't called him that, and Jesus has not called himself that. You know, he's hinted at it. And we can look at examples like in Matthew 11, where the disciples of John the Baptist come to Jesus, and they say, are you the Messiah? Are you the one we've been expecting, or should we look for another? And Jesus says, go back to John and tell him that you know, the lepers are clean, and the lame are walking, and the blind see you figure it out for yourself. He, he wasn't denying it, but he didn't claim it. And as he's been preaching and teaching his disciples, he has not even called himself the Messiah to them. But he does often refer to himself as the Son of Man. Why does he call himself the Son of Man? What does that mean? In one sense, it was a, a humbling thing that he was a human. He was calling himself something lowly. But I think there's another aspect to it. I want you to look with me at Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Where it says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. He is 
referring to himself as the one that Daniel prophesied would reign forever. A kingdom that would not be destroyed. The Son of Man was an assertion to be the Messiah without coming right out and saying it. But now Jesus says, I've done all these things. The people have seen me do these miracles. The people are gathering in these huge numbers. Who do the people say I am? The disciples answer in verse 14. And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. John the Baptist? It seems odd considering they are contemporaries. So, you know, in Matthew 14, 1, Herod the Tetrarch, this is when it's telling the story of how he beheaded John the Baptist, when he heard about Jesus' miracles, he came right out and said that he was worried that that was John the Baptist resurrected from the dead, and that was where he was getting this power. So Herod thought that Jesus was John the Baptist. And evidently, other people did too. Elijah. You know, Malachi prophesied that God would send Elijah back before the day of the Lord. Some people thought that's who Jesus was. Jeremiah, or a prophet. You know, Jeremiah, there isn't really a direct link or a prophecy about him coming, but Jesus preaching against sin in the nation and preaching against the religious leaders of the nation was very similar to Jeremiah's ministry as a prophet. But what it comes down to is this, that the people have had this idea in their head that there is something different about Jesus, that he is not a normal man, that he is either someone come back that God has sent, or he is a prophet of his own right, but something is different. And when you look at these comparisons, they're complementary. To say anyone is, could be Elijah's is a compliment or Jeremiah or John the Baptist, but they are all inadequate to who Jesus actually is. They were inadequate views. In verse 15, Jesus asks the real question. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Say, so, okay, that's fine. The people have seen my miracles. They know something's different, but they're not willing to commit to me as the Messiah. Who do you say that I am, disciples? Have you been paying attention? Verse 16, Peter gives the answer. Again, we've looked at this before. Peter is likely the spokesperson for the group that this was something that they all agreed on. But Peter was the one with the boldness to speak. Verse 16, Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the promised Messiah. You know, many in those days were coming and claiming to be the Messiah, trying to lead revolutions to overthrow the Romans, to get the Jewish people to follow them. But Jesus had come with action and with power and with truth and he proved himself to be the Messiah, the Christ. But Peter goes on. He says, you are the son of the living God. This shows the exclamation of the disciples in chapter 14 that we looked at when they're on the lake and they say, surely you must be the son of God. 
They worshipped him as the Son of God. That was wonderful, but it was somewhat inadequate. And Peter goes beyond that here. You know, they were living in this Jewish culture, but that Jewish culture was surrounded by Hellenists and by Romans who were pagans, who worshipped many gods. And these gods had children and other things. And so to say you were the Son of God, it was a wonderful thing. But Peter makes no doubt about whose God, which God Jesus is the Son of. He is the Son of the God, the living God, which was the way that the Jewish people referred to God because in comparison to the dead idols and the fake gods of the world around them, they worshiped the living God. And so Peter is proclaiming him to be the son of the living God. Verse 17. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I mean... You think about being a teacher and the struggles of working with students who aren't getting it. How exciting must have this have been for Jesus? They got it. They understand. So he says, blessed are you, Peter. Good on you. You know, I read that this is the only place in the entire book of Matthew where Jesus uses Peter's full name. This is important Jesus is showing Peter that this is important. You know, my full name is actually William Craig Rutherford. My grandfather was a William. My dad is a William. I am a William. But I never use it. You know, it's something that it's almost hard for me to recognize. The other day I was at a doctor's office waiting and the nurse came out to call someone back and she had a mask on. It wasn't clear what she was saying. And she had to say William five or six times before I finally went, oh yeah, that's me. But if it's banking or taxes or anything official, I have to use my full name. And so I know if I'm signing William, I'm signing something important. And Jesus here is saying, Simon Barjona, pay attention. What you, you just got it. Don't lose that thought. Jesus tells Peter that this was not something that he had figured out on his own, that his own flesh had not come up with this, but it had been revealed to him by God. Now, I don't think that this is something where God reached down just in that moment and opened Peter's eyes. I think that God has been revealing to Peter and all of the disciples throughout Jesus's ministry to the point where now they can't deny it. They know that he must be God. They know that he is the Messiah. Through his miracles and through his teaching, they finally got it. They've grasped the magnitude of who Jesus is. So what's our application from this, from Jesus being revealed? There is assurance in knowing who Jesus is. For the disciples, they had left everything to follow Jesus. And I think for a long time, they were probably hoping that he was who he said he was. Or who they thought he was because he had not claimed to be the Messiah. But now they have assurance that over this time God has revealed this to them. And now they have the evidence to back it up. And they know they followed the right man. 
And Jesus had the miracles. He had the love and the compassion and the truth. And that's who they were following. But they got to see all that. For us, how do we take assurance in knowing this? We didn't get to see Jesus' miracles. You know, we may not have left our families, but it's not always easy to be a follower of Christ. So how do we know that Jesus was who he said he was? You know, whenever I'm working on a project, I like to build things. And oftentimes my wife will find things on Pinterest for me to build. So recently we, got a, we adopted a dog and this dog just tore apart this metal crate we got for her. So my wife found one on Pinterest and she said, could you build this? And I got on there and I looked at it. I looked at several different plans and I found one I thought I could do. And it was an, an intensive project. It took me probably five or so days to do this maybe a week. And throughout that week, I was out working in the garage every evening and my children would come out and they would look at part of what I was working on and they would say, well, daddy, how is, how is this going to be part of a dog crate? Or they would pick up a hinge or something and say, what are you going to do with, with this thing? And I would try to explain it to them, but they're not woodworkers. They didn't have a real comprehension of what was going on. And so I, they never really got it. But at the end of the week, I finished it one night after they went to bed. And the next day they came out and it had all been put together. And there was this excitement in their faces. Oh, I saw you doing that piece the other day. And now I see where it fits. Oh, that fits there. Oh, the hinges for the door. I get it now. They saw the big picture. God has revealed the big picture to us in his word. When we see Jesus in his life told through the Synoptic Gospels and through John, we see how he fulfills prophecy. How he was born in the right place. How he was born to a virgin. How throughout his ministry he fulfills prophecy. We see his life bring the Old Testament to life. That all of these promises that God made are now coming true. We get to see it all. All of it. Because we have God's Revelation to us in his word. The big picture reveals to us that our hope is not unfounded, but we have assurance in God and his son, Jesus Christ. That who Jesus is, revealed by God to his disciples, and revealed to us through his word, it gives us assurance in knowing who Jesus is. You know, Jesus has offered us eternal life through belief in him. And we can believe that because he is the Messiah and he is the son of the living God. We can know that our following him has meaning because he is the Messiah, the son of the living God. There is assurance in knowing who Jesus is. So our next section is verses 18 to 20. And in this section we see Jesus begin to reveal his plan to his disciples. Verse 18, Jesus is continuing here. He says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, Jesus had given Peter his name. His name was Simon, and Jesus changed it. Well, we see in John 142 that he changed it to Cephas which when translated into Greek is Petros, which means rock. 
So Jesus here is saying, you are rock. Upon this rock, I will build my church. I thought it was interesting, I was reading this week, that Peter or Petros was not a common name. In fact, it was unheard of. Jesus gave him a unique name, and he's using that here to show Peter something. You are Peter. You are the rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, there are different interpretations of what Jesus is saying here. Now, Peter had a very significant role when the church would begin. But I also believe that the rock that Jesus is talking about here is not Peter. He's not saying, you are the rock, and upon you I'm going to build my church. He's saying it's the truth that you just revealed, that you just spoke, that I am the Christ, that I am the Son of the living God. Upon that and the work that I am going to do as the Messiah, it is upon that that I will build my church. You know, later, Peter in, in 1 Peter 2 uh, brings this out. He says that Christ is the cornerstone and that we are living stones that are built upon the cornerstone that Christ is. But it's interesting as we read this to know that this is the first time in the New Testament where the church is mentioned. In doing so, in revealing the church, Jesus is revealing his plans for the future to his disciples. He is going to build a church, or an ecclesia, which is a gathering of a called-out group. A called-out group that will not be overpowered. That Hades and death can come against it, but it will last. It will not be toppled because it is being built upon the work that Christ is doing. Let's read verse 19. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So what are these keys? What is Jesus saying here to Peter? It's an interesting thread that can be followed through the Gospels into the book of Acts. Uh, you know, but in this short amount of time, we'll look at it briefly of what Jesus is saying here with these keys and this binding and loosing. What would these keys do? As Jesus prophesies giving the keys of the kingdom, remember the kingdom of heaven, remember that Peter would be the one that on the day of Pentecost, the day that the church begins, Peter was the one who was preaching to the Jews that were gathered there. And then it would be Peter who would bring the gospel to the Samaritans. And it would be Peter who would take the gospel to Cornelius, thus ushering in the Gentiles into the church. It was Peter loosing these things. It was Peter accepting these things and sharing these things. The loosing and binding was a common rabbinic term for including or excluding. And it was Peter who included the Jews, the Samaritans that were sort of a half-breed. They were mixed between Jewish people and Gentiles. And then Ultimately, he brought the Gentiles in as well. I will finish this section with verse 20. Then he warned the disciples that they, should not that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. So we see this. We've looked at this before, that Jesus is constantly on a mission to begin God's will. He knew when his time was. He knew what he was going to do. But his time was not yet. 
He had to fulfill everything at the correct time. And so he didn't want the disciples telling people and getting the crowds excited that he was the Messiah because that would have brought his death upon him sooner. But as we see in this section, as Jesus begins to reveal his plan, he's giving clues to how it will work and of what Peter's role will be. You know, at that moment, at the first mention of the church, the disciples probably had absolutely no idea what this, call, this gathering of called out people meant. As we can see in Peter's upcoming response, my guess is that they were expecting this church to be coming soon and that it wouldn't be coming with Christ gone. It would be coming with him here, that this gathering was the beginning of his kingdom and that they were having this special role in it. But later, after Jesus was risen from the dead and they began to start the church, I think that they could have looked back on this moment and had a wonderful assurance that, you know what, this was part of his plan. He told us about this long before he was crucified and rose again. This church that we are building is what he wanted for this time. As they faced the struggles they did in the beginning, they had that knowledge with them to give them assurance that what they were doing was what God had for them. There is assurance in knowing Jesus' plan. You know, today it can be really easy to get discouraged about the church. When we lived in Indiana, there was a town, <coughs> excuse me, just north of us that we had to drive through all the time to get to, uh, when we went to Costco or Target or any of those stores, we had to drive a ways away and we drive through this small town. As you got to the north end of the town, on one side of the street, there was a First Brethren Church, and right across the street was a First Brethren Church of God. Now, I don't know exactly what happened there. I could be way off, but I think for, if you've been around the church for any amount of time, it's not hard to imagine that at some point in the past, a group of people from the First Brethren Church got mad, they picked up their ball, and they went across the street to start their own game. That's the way the church works a lot of times. And in 2,000 years of church history, there's a lot of messy stuff. You know, I got a mild taste of that as a young man, and it was really difficult. I was so discouraged. And I know in our talks over the last few weeks that Ariola has had some experience with this recently, and some of you are still affected by that. You know, there are remnants of that hurt that, that can hang on. You know, what is this thing that we're a part of? This church. Why is it worth it? Because it was Jesus' plan. You know, it wasn't his plan for us to have strife with each other or sin or to let our doctrine be affected by our feelings and all the things we see in the church. But this age, this church age, was Jesus' plan to spread the gospel, the good news about him throughout the whole world. And we get to be a part of that. And the church, the capital C church, is every believer in the whole world. But our body, our group of believers, makes up a local body that is the church. And we get to be a part of that and to serve him and to learn together. And it's a special thing to be a part of his plan. You know, Jesus said that the church wouldn't be toppled by the gates of Hades. And as we battle as a church, as we build just as he predicted, 
Now we can have assurance in knowing Jesus' plan. So our last section here is verses 21 to 23. And in that we see that Jesus is going to reveal his mission to his disciples. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. From that time, so there is something has happened. They now have an advanced level of knowledge. Jesus has hinted at this before. Just in our sermon last week, we looked at how Jesus told the scribes and the Pharisees the only sign that they would get was the sign of Jonah, which he had explained a couple chapters before is that as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, so the Son of Man would be in the heart of earth for three days. So he's alluded to this, he's hinted at it in veiled ways, but now they have this knowledge of who he really is and some knowledge of what the future looks like. And so now that they've got that, he's, he's continuing to build and he's telling them exactly what will happen. He's giving them the details. That it's going to happen when they go to Jerusalem. That it's going to be the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And that he will be killed. And he tells them exactly when he'll be raised from the dead on the third day. In light of the, that statement there from that time, I want to look at, at two verses that are upcoming here. Uh, chapter 17, verses 22 to 23 says, And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised up on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. And again, in chapter 20, um, verses 17 through 19, it says, As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Jesus is now, now that they've got this knowledge, he's making it clear why he came to earth, what his mission is. Now that they had assurance they could, they could take this news, now, they don't take it well, but he's entrusting this knowledge to them now that they have the knowledge of who he is. So they don't take it well. Let's read verse 22. Now, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He rebuked Jesus, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Can't you just see Peter? I mean, Jesus is saying these things that I'm going to be hand it over and they're going to kill me, but I'll raise again on the third day. And Jesus is saying that Peter takes him aside and says, Jesus, what's with all this dying stuff? It's really getting the guys down. Right? Knock it off. This can't happen to you. You're Jesus. 
You're the son of the living God, the Messiah. You can't be killed. We just went over this. But Jesus puts Peter in his place. Verse 23, But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. That is a rebuke. Have you ever been really wrong about something and you don't really want to admit you're wrong and someone calls you out on it and whatever they say just cuts right through your lies and your selfishness? I mean, it hurts. It can be hard to take, but can you imagine having Jesus, the man that you just proclaimed as the son of the living God, call you Satan? Ouch. Now, Jesus had just told Peter that he was going to give him the keys to the kingdom. Peter was the one with the boldness to say the truth, to say what they were all thinking, but he was the, the spokesperson, and therefore he was going to have this greater role as the church was built. But then he turns right around and sticks his foot in his mouth, and Jesus has to call him out on it. I think that should be a warning to all of us that none of us are above messing up. As hard as that could have been, I think that as time went on and Peter could look back at that moment, I mean, he would have had real assurance knowing that this was Jesus' mission. You know, in Luke, when it's telling a story of the resurrection, it talks about Peter running to the grave and looking inside and all he found were the grave clothes. And then he went home and he marveled at those things. Do you think he might have marveled remembering what Jesus had said to him all that time ago? That he would be killed? Exactly how it was going to happen? And exactly when he would raise from the dead? And on that third day, going to the tomb and seeing it empty? And then later to see the risen Christ. Wow. You know, our application is, as Jesus shared the future with his disciples, he told them what the future would hold. Anyone can tell you what's going to happen in the future. But when Jesus said it, it came true. So we can have assurance of the future because we know what Jesus says will happen will happen come true. You know, we can look back that Jesus was dying was a part of his mission and he called it. He said it was going to happen and it happened the exact way he said it would. And then he was raised from the dead the exact day he said he would be. You know, last week I mentioned Waco that we were watching that documentary series and well, we finished it this week and as as the federal agents were closing in and the building was on fire and there was people wanting to leave, David Koresh was telling them that he had been prophesying that this would happen. And that if they left then, if they didn't die with him, that they would miss out on what God had for them. Anyone could prophesy that they're going to die. We're all going to die. Jesus prophesied a message that cannot be duplicated, that he was going to rise from the dead. And he did it. 
You know, and so because we know that, we can believe so many other things. And we can believe that he rose from the dead because he didn't hide it. And you look back to verse 20, he didn't want everyone knowing he was the Messiah then. But after he rose from the dead, you know, I love 1 Corinthians 15 where it talks about Paul saying that, you know, Jesus was crucified, buried, he rose again, and he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then to 500 people at one time, and then to James and all the apostles again, and finally he appeared to Paul, risen. He made it known. He made it known so that even now we can know and have assurance that what Jesus says will happen will happen. He called himself the Son of Man, the one who will reign forever. We know that that will happen. He told us that he would be with us always, even to the end of the age. We know that that's true. Now, there are other truths like in 1 Thessalonians 4, when we read about the rapture and that those that are dead in Christ will be raised and be with him. And that those of us who are still alive will join him in the air. Now, that's a beautiful truth and we can believe it because... Jesus keeps his promises. And Jesus even gave a revelation of the future to John, who wrote it down for us. And we can believe everything about it. Because when Jesus tells us about the future, it comes true. We can have assurance in the future, because just like Jesus told his disciples the future, he has told us the future too. And we can have assurance in the future. <clears throat> As we conclude, I want you to think about the world around us and the desperation of this world. And this world needs to find hope in something. It's desperately looking for something to give themselves hope. You know, my grandfather had a lot of colorful sayings. One of them was that you could hope in one hand and spit in the other and see which one filled up first. Hope in empty things is empty. And everything of this world is empty. But our hope is not empty. Our hope is based on truth and we can have assurance. In the beginning I told the story of how I, I worked with Pastor Steve at a church here. As that internship began, I, we sat down one day and... He asked me that day, he said, what do you want to get out of your time with me? And I told him, I said, you know, I, I had no illusions of grandeur, no thoughts that I would someday be a preacher. I told him, I just want to feel like I can do it if I absolutely have to. I want to get some level of competency so that if I'm asked to preach, I can do it without sweating bullets and giving a terrible sermon. And that first Sunday that I got to preach in his church, it didn't really go a whole lot better than my sermon back in Indiana. But Steve sat down with me the next day, and he went over for a couple hours with me. We watched this tape and paused it and rewinded it and looked at it, and he showed me things that I'd done well and ways that I could improve. And then he took me in the sanctuary, and we practiced. We worked on things. He told me what I needed to do. And as I got up the next Sunday night to preach, afterwards the congregation was, they just kept remarking, you weren't the same preacher you were last week. What happened? 
all of a sudden I had confidence in what I was doing. I still had a lot to learn and I still do, but I, all of a sudden I had assurance that I could do it and I was visibly changed. You could tell a difference immediately. And in the same way, our lives should reflect the assurance that we have in Jesus. And there is assurance in who Jesus is. There is assurance in knowing Jesus' plan. And there is assurance in knowing what the future holds. Jesus wins. He reigns forever in a kingdom that will not end. So live like that. In a world that desperately needs Jesus, if you live like that, it's going to look different. People will see that change. And like those people remarked to me that night, what happened? You can tell them, Jesus. I have not only hope, I have assurance. I have something to live by. What a glorious thing that is. Let your faith grow in those assurances and show the world around you what that means to you. Would you close with me in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for sending your Son. I thank you that we see here how he revealed himself to his disciples and what his plans were and what you had sent him here for. And we, we praise you for that and for who he is and that he is living and seated at your right hand right now. Lord, I pray that you be with us as we go. Lord, be with my family as we get prepared to move and be with the church, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So thank you again, and hopefully we will be up there soon and get to be with you in person. Bye now.